Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, hey, we're in Nahum, so uh, beginning with verse 1. Now, um, it says here, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Uh, Nahum uh, the Elkoshite, we don't really know, uh, nobody really knows where Elkosh was located. Um, But it's interesting that the city of Capernaum, that was the city that Jesus uh, kind of based his ministry up in the Galilee region, that name Capernaum actually means the village of Nahum. So it's quite possible that Elkosh was either nearby or at Capernaum. And uh, so uh, the word Nahum, it's interesting. His name means comfort. And it kind of seems to be kind of ironic because this book of Nahum is a prophecy of God's wrath against the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Excuse me. Why did God choose a man whose name means comfort to proclaim God's wrath? Well, the answer is, it all depends on your perspective. And we'll be looking at that a little bit later on. And so Nahum starts out his prophecy of of God's wrath, and he calls it the burden against Nineveh. And, you know, a a burden, it's a load. It's something that's heavy to bear. And uh, so Nahum is not like gleefully proclaiming God's wrath against Nineveh and against the Assyrians. Um, you know, the interesting thing, if, if you know, we're confronted now in, our, in, in the world right now with ISIS, right? It's just these terrorists that are they're growing in influence and they're very vicious. They've been beheading Christians and uh, anybody that stands in their way. They, they basically, anyone that doesn't believe exactly as they believe, they kill them. And uh, and so it's just a, it's a terrible and it, some of the things the brutalities and the viciousness of what they've been doing you hear that in the news and it's just it's terrible. Well, the Assyrians were like the ISIS of their day. They were very brutal. They were feared by everybody. When an Assyrian army uh, invaded your city, your town, or country, whatever it was, it sent shivers up and down everybody's spine because what they would do is they would actually, to, to, to strike fear in people, they were like terrorists. They would skin captives alive. They would put fish hooks through their noses and mouths, and they'd, they'd put them like a stringer of, of fish, basically, and they'd, they'd drag them in chains to Assyria. They were very brutal, and uh, they would pluck people's eyes out. I mean, they did all kinds of, of vicious, cruel things, and, and so they were, they were very wicked. And, uh, but the thing is, this was a burden to pronounce God's wrath. It was a burden. And, you know, the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 33 that God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God has no pleasure in the in the in uh, the death of the wicked, um, and so this is a burden for Nahum. Nahum was not like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah was also a prophet that was sent to Nineveh, and he was told to proclaim the destruction of Nineveh, and uh, he actually uh, was kind of looking forward to the destruction, to be honest with you, because they were so feared and they were so hated by the Israelis, by the Israelites. Um, but Nahum was not like Jonah. Nahum, it was, a, it was a burden. And speaking of Jonah, you might say, well, wait a minute. I remember when we went through Jonah, God spared Nineveh from destruction. 
And the answer is yes. The people of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and God relented and spared that city. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was time had passed. In fact, generations had passed, approximately about 150 years to be exact. And a new generation that didn't remember God's mercy rose up, and they returned to their wicked ways. They returned to their wickedness. You know, it reminds me of the days, the Bible tells us in the book of Judges, when Joshua led the the children of Israel into the promised land. And in that whole generation, they had seen all the miracles that God had performed for Israel. And the Bible tells us in the book of Judges that that generation, Joshua's generation, when they died, a new generation rose up. And they didn't remember all those things that God had done. They had forgotten about God. And uh, at that time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's so important to teach your children about the Lord. It's so important to speak about what God is doing in your life. Let your children hear about that. Remind them of how God does, uh, still does miracles even today. Well, after Nineveh's national repentance, they returned to their wickedness. And God patiently waited for 150 years But now their judgment was ripe, and so God sent Nahum to prophesy their destruction. And so Nahum begins his vision first, speaking about the Lord God. In verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2 of Nahum, it says, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The very first thing we're told is that God is jealous. Now, it's interesting because when you hear that, that sounds bad, right? We're not, to be, we're not supposed to be jealous. The character of jealousy in man is different than in God. If you think about this, you have a fi- uh, an infinite God who's revealed himself to finite man, and he's using human language. Human language, which is finite. In other words, he's using man's words. And so an infinite God is using finite terms to describe himself because that's all we know. That's all we understand is the finite. And so God uses a term. He describes himself as a jealous God. But again, God's jealousy is not the same as man's jealousy. Jealousy in man is based on the fear of losing someone or losing something. Jealousy in man results in actions that are sinful. Well, God is not insecure in his relationship with you. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, derive his sense of self-worth based on whether you love him or not. God is inse- not insecure. God is supreme, though, and he's the only one worthy of your most utmost affection, of your utmost worship. It'd be better to think of God, uh, that God is jealous for you. You see, he doesn't want your and my heart to be divided with another loyalty because he knows the harm that can come from you if your heart is turned away from him in any way. It causes harm. And so God is a jealous God. God avenges. Now, it's interesting, in those verses, it's mentioned three times that God avenges. And in man... Vengeance results in sin. But God reserves the right to revenge only himself. Listen, Romans 12, 19, 
Paul writes this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Just let, let, let God take care of it. You don't have to take care of it, is what Paul is saying. See, the reason why is because God's vengeance is just, it's right, it's fair, and it's perfect. It's done in perfection. And then he tells us God reserves wrath for his enemies. Paul also wrote this in Romans 2, verses 5 through 6. He says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. People are treasuring up, they're storing up wrath for themselves. Peter also says this in, in 2 Peter 2.9. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So God reserves wrath, or excuse me, God avenges um, and reserves wrath for his enemies. But then he says something that seems almost opposite. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then he continues, and will not at all acquit the wicked. God's forbearance, being slow to anger, that is a theme that is throughout the Bible. It's repeated all over. In fact, Jonah, as we mentioned earlier, Jonah knew this character about God, and it angered him. Remember in Jonah, when God had sent Jonah to pronounce destruction on Nineveh. And so Jonah, at first he didn't want to go, but eventually he went. And he went and he proclaimed judgment there in Nineveh. And it says from the king all the way down to the servant, everybody repented of their sins. And, and God relented from destroying Nineveh. And it says in Jonah chapter 4 that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. He wanted to see the destruction of these people. And so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. You see, God is slow to anger, but he is also holy. And at some point he has to judge wickedness. But what's common in people is that people mistake God's forbearance for his apathy. God's not, you know, nothing's happening to me, so it must be okay. God must not care. Well, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance, the Bible tells us. Well, the Ninevites, they returned to their wickedness, and nothing happened for about 150 years until Nahum was sent to prophesy to them. And now what? Now all of that is going to change. Now, how can all this be a comfort to God's people? Again, it all depends on your perspective. What side of the equation are you viewing this from? You see, God's wrath is a terrible thing to the wicked, but for God's uh, people who have repented of their sins and have turned to him for their salvation, this can be a comfort. When you read this, first of all, God doesn't ignore the mistreatment of his people. God says, I'll avenge. You don't need to. You see, we can trust that God doesn't forget those things. 
those ways you've been mistreated, God doesn't forget. And God will do what is right. God will avenge for us. Secondly, the wicked may be reserved for wrath, but listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God hasn't appointed you and I for wrath. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, God is so patient towards us. In Nehemiah 9 verse 17, it tells us God is ready to pardon us when we sin. God's just waiting. Do you remember the parable uh, of the uh, prodigal son? You know, he, he squandered his, the inheritance of his father. He went out and he lived, you know, wine, woman, and song or whatever. Um, nowadays it would be sex, drugs, rock and roll. But, you know, it's all that stuff he did. And then he finally, he, he was down to nothing. And he said, I'm going to return to my father. At least, you know, I'll, I'll ask if I can just be a servant, because at least the servants, you know, at least they're fed, and they've got a, a roof over their heads. And so he started heading back. And it says that the father was, it, the father was like at the edge of his property, waiting and watching and waiting. And now he saw his son coming in the difference, distance, and he ran out to greet him. That's God's heart towards each one of us. He is ready and willing to pardon us when we sin. The third way that God, this can be a comfort to us is that God does not, it says that God does not at all acquit the wicked. And to be acquitted means you've been declared innocent and you've been left unpunishment, unpunished. Excuse me. That's exactly what God has done for you and I. The Bible says that we are justified by Jesus Christ. Justified. It's, it's a word we don't use very often, but it's just as if I hadn't sinned. Because Jesus Christ took the punishment on him and died on the cross for our sins. And so God, who is a holy God, he sees, the, he sees you and I now as saints. He sees us as forgiven. He sees us as if we had never sinned before. That's what justification is. And then we're left unpunished. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment on him when he died on the cross for us. And so he's delivered us from God's wrath. And so in these ways, this is really a comfort for us. But now Nahum focuses on God's power. Look at the second half of verse 3. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. So here we're reading that God is slow to anger and God is ready to pardon. But if people don't repent, when he does pour out his wrath, no one is going to be able to stand and endure it says his fury will be poured out like fire. Now, the language here is very picturesque. I mean, you get a, definitely you get a mental image when you're, when you're reading this about God's judgment on Nineveh. But descriptions like this, he dries up all the rivers, the mountains quaking and the hills melting at his presence, the world and all who dwell in it quaking and melting at his presence. It seems to indicate that in addition to Nahum prophesying about the destruction of Nineveh, Nahum is also looking way beyond into the distant future, for him, of course, and seeing the worldwide catastrophic events that are going to occur. The Bible tells us that will be occurring during the Great Tribulation. 
And at that time, and the Bible says in Revelation 6, 17, mankind will say, the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No one will be able to stand before a holy and a just God. You know, it amazes me. Sometimes you talk to people about, uh, you know, about the Lord and stuff, and, and they'll go, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to ask him, why did this happen? You know, he's got to answer to me, basically. Well, I got the answer t- for that. I mean, <laughs> the Bible teaches us we're all going to be down on our knees. We're going to be bowed before Jesus Christ. So. But then in verse 7, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. So in the middle of all this language regarding God's wrath, Nahum speaks more comfort to God's people. And he says, the Lord is good. That is such an important thing to know in the midst of the storm. You know, that was Satan's first words of doubt sown in Eve's heart. Is the Lord good? That's basically what he was asking Eve. He's basically whispers in Eve's ear and he whispers in our ear saying, you know, God is withholding from you. God doesn't want you. Well, in Eve's case, God was withholding pleasure so that you won't be like him knowing good from evil. But that's what God says to us. It's God is not good. He's holding out on you. You know, there are times in life when it seems like you know nothing, and Satan starts whispering in your ear seeds of doubt. I remember receiving the news that my grandson was dying, and uh, we went out to Washington, uh, where, where my daughter and her family is. And, uh, you know, you get there, and uh, it's like you're the dad, you know, you're the, you're the, my, I'm the grandfather. You want to fix it, right? It's like there's nothing you can do. There's no, and you have all the experts in the hospital, and, and they're doing everything that they've been trained to do, and they're, they're giving the best care that they can, and the doctors are helpless. And it's times like that when it's like, man, I don't know anything. And you know, people say, why did this happen? You go, I have no clue why God would allow something like that to happen. And I know some of you have gone through the same kind of situations. It's times like that when there's no answers, and you don't know anything. But that's when it's so important to know this. God is good. God is good. I don't know why anything happens, but I know that God is good. And it's times like that when you, when you, when you just lean on that, that's when the peace of God floods your heart and your soul. You know, the Bible says that God's peace passes understanding because sometimes you just don't understand. I, I just don't know, but I know that God is good. And it's so important. I, I like that song. I don't know. We had Randy Stonehill here. Uh, not well. It's been a while now, but uh, a couple years back. But he sang that one song. You know, life is tough, but God is good. And it's so true. And it's such an important thing to remember that God is good. And God's a stronghold in the day of trouble, a stronghold, a refuge, a shelter, or for or a fortress. Those who seek shelter in him are not going to be disappointed. And then it says he knows those who trust in him. You know, there's one thing that God can be accused of. He's discriminatory in his practices. You go, oh, that's what's that mean? Well, God discriminates his people. In other words, God does not indiscriminately pour out his wrath on all. He does not do that. He knows those who put their trust in him, and he's a stronghold to those who trust in him. 
There's so many passages of scripture that tell us about how the Lord knows about us. Listen, Psalm 1-6 tells us that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows where you're headed. He, He knows where you've been. He sees you on your path. He knows you. Psalm 37, 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. God knows he's seen you from the beginning and he sees you all the way to the end. And he knows that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have eternity as well. But he knows our days. He knows the length of them. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul said this, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. You see, we're not just talking about a belief system, you know. Uh, just, you know, if I believe these things, then, you know, I, there's this outcome of belief. It's a relationship with the living God. That's what we're talking about, a relationship that's made possible through Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny, this election cycle, I don't know about you guys, somehow... Some way, and I don't know how, I got on Ted Cruz's campaign emails. Again, I don't know how it happened, but I get this email, and, and I look at it, and it's from, it's got just the name of some person who's, I guess, maybe on their campaign or something, some guys on their staff or whatever. And I get this email, and it says, Don. So I'm like, oh, somebody I know. So I'm looking at it, and it says, I was just in the office with Ted. And he was wondering, he said, I haven't heard from Don yet. And so he says, you know, um, so I'm sending you this email because we haven't heard from you yet. And of course, it's a request for money, right? I mean, that's what it is, right? And I'm like, whoa, Ted Cruz is thinking of me. Now, I don't, I, it's like, I don't, how did he know me, <laughs> you know? It's funny. And I don't know, I'm sure all the other campaigns are doing, like I said, somehow I got on his email list. And, and uh, so I unsubscribed and I kept getting him. I'm like, what? So, but anyways. He doesn't know me. But you know what? God knows us. In fact, in Psalm 139, 17, David is reflecting on God, and he says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Have you ever been to the beach before? You ever gotten sand and you're, you know, you get in between your toes or if you're doing a picnic. I don't like picnics on the beach because I always get crunchy, you know, sand in my teeth and stuff. And, uh, of course, you probably shouldn't lay your sandwich down on the sand. That would probably fix that. But, but uh, you know, you think of all that sand. And the Bible says God's thoughts towards us are more than sand. It's amazing. David was just overcome with the realization of that in Psalm 144, verse 3. He says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? I mean, we're just a speck in the universe. What, why do you think of us so much? And yet that's what the Bible says. God is constantly thinking about us. He knows you. He knows your days. He knows everything about you. He knows the hurts that you've, been, that you've experienced in your life. He knows all that. Well, Nahum continues here, verse 8. But with an overflooding, excuse me, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble. Very dry. Now, I already talked about the the Assyrians, how wicked they were. 
But Nineveh, the city, that was their capital city. In the book of Jonah, it says it was an exceedingly great city. It took three days' journey to walk from one end to the other end. And uh, um, it consisted basically of a few cities, and they were all in close proximity, or it was kind of known as, as Nineveh. And the population is estimated at being at least 600,000 people. So this wasn't just a small little town. This was a large metropolis area, Nineveh, in this day and in that time. In fact, the circumference of the city was probably 60 miles, so it's, it's, it's huge. Um, now, the main city, because I said it was a few cities together, the main city of Nineveh itself had walls that were approximately 100 feet high. There were 1,500 towers around these in these different places on the walls, and the wall was broad enough that three chariots could ride side by side. I mean, this thing was, it was massive, and uh, they had... Uh, they had constructed it so that the Euphrates River would flow through the city so they'd always have a fresh water supply. And uh, and so, you know, if if an army came and in those days to try to take over, they would siege the city, right? They'd surround the city and they'd, they'd cut off all the things, all the resources and all the supplies coming in, nothing coming in, nothing going out. And they would basically starve out the people and then eventually they would they would take over the city. They'd, they'd, they'd break, you know, they'd breach the wall and get through there. And... Uh, Nineveh was such a wealthy and such a well-fortified city that uh, uh, the Scythians, uh, they surrounded Nineveh and uh, they went ahead and uh, tried to siege the city. And for two years, Nineveh was able to basically just outsit them. You know, they basically, they had fresh water coming in. They had enough food and, and resources inside the city that they, they could sit there for two years and just like, you know, they could see them on the other side of the wall, but they didn't have to worry about it. And, uh, but the Bible here says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. And that 18 years after Nehemiah had prophesied after this book of Nehemiah was written. The Scythians, they, they built the siege around there. For two years, nothing happened. But according to the Greek historian Diorodus Siculus, we can call him Stinky for short, um, in the third year of the siege, there was a rainstorm, and heavy rains swelled the banks of the Kors River, not the drink, but the, that's it's K-O-R-H-S, and one of the floodgates at the northwest angle of the city was swept away. And the rushing water um, came in through that floodgate and basically washed out the foundation of the wall in this one place. And the wall collapsed and it left a large gap that the invaders were able to enter the city by. Exactly as God had prophesied. And it says, For while tangled thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dry. And Diorodus Siculus, stinky, um, wrote that the government officials of Nineveh were drunk when the wall collapsed. And the invaders, they entered the city and they set the city on fire, exactly as God said it would happen. And it says, He will make an utter end of it. And that utter end of it, it's mentioned twice in this passage of Scripture. Nineveh after its destruction, disappeared from history. And it disappeared for so long that for many, many centuries, people didn't believe that Nineveh actually existed because there was no evidence of it. And not until about the 1840s, when a guy, archaeologist, was excavating in the area not too far from Mosul, Mosul, Iraq, that he, that he stumbled onto the ruins of the city of Nineveh. 
and they uncovered it and found out that it did exact it did exist. Verse 11 says <clears throat> excuse me from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord a wicked counselor thus says the Lord though they are safe and likewise many yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Now verse 11 is referring to the time when Sennacherib who was the king of Assyria, he sent the Rabshakeh, which was basically like, a, like an envoy for him, to threaten King Hezekiah, if you remember that story. It's in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles. This is what this is referring to, uh, the one who comes forth plotting evil against the Lord. And of course, it, it, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't succeed. Hezekiah was praying to the Lord, and basically Sennacherib heard some rumors. He went back to Nineveh, and he went into the temple of his God, and his, he was a conspiracy, and his sons, I think it was, murdered him there in, his, in the temple. So that was, verse 11 is speaking about Sennacherib. And now God is speaking to his people here, the second half of verse 12. It says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. You see, God had used the Assyrians as his tool of punishment for idolatrous Israel. And the Bible says, As a father chastens the son that he loves, so God chastens his people. And and, and when they continue in sin, God will chasten us. But the Bible also tells us that he doesn't remain angry. I love that. Let me read this out of Psalm 30, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, For you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God doesn't remain angry. Verse 13, For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. You know, for God's people, news regarding the final destruction of Nineveh was comforting to them. Because the Assyrians, again, they were always a threat to Israel. They were, they were capturing people. They were torturing people. They were putting them into bondage. And so those that were, that were the enemies of Israel would no longer be able to afflict them. And this was good news. It was a comfort that God would deal with them. And now Nahum is speaking prophetically to the Assyrians. Verse 14, The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. You see, not only was the city of Nineveh so completely destroyed that for many, many centuries, it wasn't even thought, you know, they thought it was an imaginary city. But the Assyrian people disappeared from history as well. You don't have neighbors that are like Assyrian. Hey, where are you from? I'm from Assyria. You know, they're, they're, not, they're no longer around anymore. Verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. 
That might sound familiar to you, then probably because both Isaiah and the Apostle Paul say pretty much the same thing. The idea is the feet that bring good news uh, of peace, man, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's refreshing when someone gives news of peace. And Paul uses that to describe the feet that brings the good news of salvation, uh, of God's salvation, that they've got beautiful feet. You know, I've been fortunate to be able to pray with people to receive Christ into their hearts uh, quite a few times. And I've never, ever had someone come back to me that I've prayed with them, led them to the Lord, that, that they've come back to me later and say, man, I regretted making that decision. Uh, I wish I had never done that. I've never, ever had that happen before. In fact, just the opposite. I've had people that have come back and said, you know what, I am so thankful that you shared the gospel. I'm so thankful that I've made that choice, that decision. They're always, and without exception, joyful and thankful. You know, Ephesians 6.15 talks about you and I shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I think it's interesting that Paul uses the, 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 the picture of the shoes and the feet as spreading the gospel of peace because that means you got to go. you got to go and share the good news. This flood run outreach that we're going to be doing, you know, that is one of those opportunities for you and I to bring a message of peace with God through Jesus Christ to hurting people. That's a message that everyone needs to hear. And so we have the opportunity to go forth and to actually do that. Again, I encourage you to be a part of that. So the news that the Assyrians, the enemy of God's people, are going to be destroyed, while being heavy news, it's also good news because of the afflictions they had caused on the people of Israel and Judah. It would cease. They would no longer be a threat to them anymore. And so in the second half of verse 15, he says, O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you, he is utterly cut off. You see, the news of the destruction of Nineveh is either terrifying or comforting. It all depends on your perspective. For the enemies of God's people, God's wrath against them is terrible. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for God's people, man, it's a comfort to know God is going to destroy their enemy. And now, because their enemies destroyed, they're free to worship the Lord, they're free to keep their feasts, and to keep their vows. You know, we all have an enemy. Some of us try to fight that enemy. That enemy is sin and death. Everyone, death is our enemy, right? Well, God destroyed the power of our enemies through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took our sin our shame, our guilt on himself, and he paid the price for our sin and set us free from that. Our enemy has been destroyed. The wicked one has been utterly cut off. So now you and I are free to worship the Lord and to keep our vows. And you go, well, that sounds like an Old Testament thing, you know, the feast of the Lord and the vows. What kind of vows? We don't, we don't make vows like that anymore. Well, yeah, I think we have. Think about the vows that you made to the Lord when you prayed to receive Jesus Christ into your heart. Maybe you said something like this, you know, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior, and I will surrender my life to you. Or maybe you said, you know, Lord, I'm going to follow you anywhere you go. Or "I, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. My life is totally yours. We've made a vow like that. 
in some way or another to the Lord. Well, I want to encourage you, remember your vow. Remember that time when you gave your heart to the Lord. Remember what that was like and return to that place again because you and I were free to worship the Lord now and to keep that vow. Our enemy has been destroyed by Jesus Christ on the cross. You've been set free, and now you can keep the vows that you've made. Why don't you stand up, and we're going to end here. We'll finish up Nahum next week. Two more chapters, so we'll, we'll, we'll go through those next week. But uh, I want to encourage you this morning. You know, God, uh, he's a holy God. He's a loving God. In fact, he loves us so much, that's why he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. But he is a holy God. And he has to deal with sin. And he will deal with sin. But the good news is that he dealt with sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the price for your and my sin on the cross. He died a sinner's death. A man who did not commit any sin. There was no sin found in him. He became sin for us and died on the cross. And the Bible says three days later he rose again from the dead. And now he offers forgiveness to anyone that will receive him. And so I just want to give you this opportunity this morning. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, this morning can be a change for you. This, is, this morning can be the, the day that, that you go from, the Bible says when we accept Christ as our Savior, we literally pass from death into life. We really, really literally have eternal life as a promise. And, and Lord God gives us his Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee, as a down payment of our salvation. And so I want to give people here an opportunity to pray to receive Jesus Christ this morning. And so if you want to pray to receive Christ, I just encourage you where you're at this morning to pray with me. I'll, I'll lead us in prayer, and, and you can follow along. And, you know, God knows your heart. There's not like this certain formula. I have to say it a certain way. or You know, God knows your heart. And if you're sincere, he will save you because God is ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive us. So why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning. Lord God, I thank you that you died on the cross and paid the price for my sin. Father, I pray that you would forgive me of my sin. Lord, I pray that you would come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior, and I surrender my life to you, Lord. I thank you for vanquishing my enemies, sin and death. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.